And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be one left. There will not be left there one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. Famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake. So bear witness to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where we where he where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is in the housetop not go down, nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. Pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone asks to you, says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. From the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, 
This generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight, or when the cock crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Amen. It's our second week looking at this chapter and our final week looking at this section in Mark. And we saw last week, if you were here, that Mark 13 is about the end of the world. There's lots of frenetic activity in the preceding chapters as Jesus is in Jerusalem. He's kind of uh, arguing, fighting with the religious leaders there. They're trying to find a way to trap him and arrest him. So there's action, atmosphere there. And then afterwards, in 1415, the events around the cross... But in Mark 13, there is this pause as nothing happens apart from Jesus speaks. And it's very unusual in Mark, an extended speech from Jesus recorded as he, as it were, looks forward and talks to his disciples about what the future will be like, what the future will hold. He says that an end is coming and we need to live in the light of that. What does he say? Well, we could sum up what we saw last week like this. He says that after he is crucified and risen, his disciples will begin the work of spreading the gospel, spreading the good news through all the world. But that work will take place, he says, in the face of opposition and false teaching and suffering and turmoil. He says there will be great trials. But we saw in the end, one day when Jesus returns in glory, an end will come. He will judge the world with justice, and he will save his people on that day. He says an end is coming. And we saw last week that, um, in part, that end is prefigured by the destruction of the Jerusalem temple. Um, In 70 AD, a little bit after these um, words were written, um, the Roman soldiers moved in, they flattened the temple, and that was that. And that was a sort of... prefiguring of the end that Jesus said would come. But from our point of view, we are waiting for the final fulfillment when Jesus will return. That's what Mark 13 is about. It's it's looking forward and saying the gospel will go out, but this is what it will be like. It will be hard. And we saw last week that the effect of this is to comfort us if we're Christians. These warnings from Jesus, these warning words, they show us that suffering and weakness and opposition are normal parts of the Christian life. These things are not signs that something has gone wrong, but quite the opposite. Jesus spoke these words so that his followers would know what to expect, and so that in the midst of suffering and weakness and trials, we could know that none of what we face is outside of what he knew would happen. So it's a comfort for us. But it's also a challenge The final paragraph of the chapter, Jesus says, we're 
our, our position is like servants. We've been left behind. The master has gone away for a while, and we've been left about our work. But he, he will come back, and when he comes, he wants to find us working hard. And the temptation for us is that we, we don't do that. We nod off. We go to sleep which in real-life terms means putting the work of Jesus, speaking the gospel, onto the back burner, and we focus instead on our own concerns and comforts. And this chapter is written to say, we mustn't do that. This end that is coming is too big. We need to live in the light of it. We need to stay focused so that when Jesus comes, he finds us about his business. And it's too big as well for the people all around us who are not yet ready for that day not yet ready to meet Jesus when he comes on good terms. And so ahead of time, we need to take the opportunity to speak the gospel and help people to get ready wherever we can. That's what Mark 13 is really all about. It's saying that an end is coming, and we need to live in the light of that. But this evening, what we're going to do is um, look again through the text of the chapter, and what we'll see is... uh, a different strand, a third strand in what Jesus is talking about. It isn't easy to spot at first, but when you do spot it, it becomes very plain, and you wonder how you missed it. It becomes as plain as the nose on your face, which for some of us is very plain indeed. I'm talking about the fact, written on the service sheets, that Mark wants us to see that the cross, in some ways, is also the end of the world. So there is... The end that Jesus was talking about, it was prefigured, yes, in the Jerusalem temple, and the end of the world beyond that. But before those things, another way of looking at the the apocalyptic and cataclysmic events that this chapter is describing, he's saying that it's about the cross, the things that were just about to happen when Jesus would be arrested and executed. It's quite a common thing for promises in the Bible to have multiple fulfillments like that. A promise that God makes, not just to refer to to one fulfillment, but actually to a number of things. So, for example, in John's Gospel, Jesus promises, he, he says he's about to die and go, but he says, I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you, he promises his disciples. And does that mean his resurrection when he would come back to them? Well, yes, it does. Or does it mean when he would uh, send the Spirit, Jesus himself arriving to live with and in his people? Well, yes, it means that too. Or does it mean his promise to come at the end of time when he he will uh, return in glory? Yes, it means that too. Do you see what I mean? One promise, but fulfilled in uh, a, a range of different and progressing ways. It's often compared to when you're out for a walk in the hills and you're really chuffed because you think you're at the summit but you get there and you realize that you're not because there's another summit beyond it. And you think, ah, well, this is good, but there's more to come, I see. That's often what the Bible is like. There is a first fulfillment, but then still more to come. And what we need to see this evening is that as Jesus talks about the end of the world, the the apocalyptic events, the cross is the first fulfillment of that. When will sin be judged and God's people rescued? Yes, at the end of the world, but also at the cross? When will the kingdom of God be established in triumph? Yes, at the end of the world, but also at the cross. Now, 
I hope that makes sense. It wouldn't surprise me if it was a bit unclear. It wouldn't surprise me if, frankly, it seemed a bit irrelevant, some sort of classroom theology on a Sunday night. But when we get our heads around this, when we see this from what Mark is saying, it, it really will help us in our, in our hearts and in real life as we head into the week that's coming. It's this truth that the cross is a kind of a prefiguring of judgment day. It's this truth that will give us great assurance of safety if we're Christians. And I hope to talk about that a little bit later on. It's this truth that will help us to face and even embrace the suffering that's involved in being a Christian. This truth will help us with that. So there is a practical payoff, I promise. (laughs) But before we reach that, we will need to do some, some spade work and see how Mark really is showing us this link between the cross and the end of the world, that in his mind, these two things are very much intertwined and linked. Now, I think there are, there are seven bits of evidence as we look through the chapter that nail this down. Don't be put off by seven of them. We're going to run through them very quickly, okay? So we'll establish what Mark is saying, and then we'll see the practical implications. So seven little uh, clues in the text show us that Mark is linking the cross where Jesus died and the end of the world. Um, First, um, Mark 13 predicts that people will be betrayed and handed over, and that's exactly what happens in the events around the cross. So in our chapter, uh, chapter 13, there is a Greek word that's used uh, three times. It means to be handed over to the authority, handed over to the Romans, say, or to be betrayed. And then in Mark 14 and 15, he uses exactly the same word, uh, no, um, 10 times. I shouldn't exaggerate, but still, that's quite a lot. The same word. And this, he's saying, this is what you can expect as you face that apocalyptic future, betrayal, people being handed over. And that's what happened when Jesus died. So if you look at uh, Mark 13, verse 12, he says, brother will deliver brother over to death and the father his child. And then if you look on to 14 verse 10, it's the same word, betrayal, brother. It's talking about Judas there. And think of those words from Mark 13. As Jesus said, that's what you can expect as the end approaches. Brother will betray brother. And that's what we see in Judas and the father will hand over his child. If you look at uh, chapter 15, verse 1. The end of that, as Jesus is led away and handed over for execution by the Romans. Does that make sense? The way that Mark 13 says the future will be is seen already in the events around the cross. Uh, Secondly, um, if you look back at uh, 1335, Jesus tells his disciples to stay awake because they don't know when the kingdom of God is going to come. So they need to stay awake so that the master will find them working when he comes. And then in chapter 14, as Jesus prays in the Garden of Gethsemane, what happens? His disciples fall asleep. And a number of times he has to say to them, stay awake, because the kingdom is about to come. Uh, Third, looking again at that verse, 1335, 
Jesus says to stay awake because you don't know when the master or the kingdom will come, whether it be in the evening, at midnight, when the rooster crows, or in the morning. Now, in Roman terminology, those are the four watches of the night. And Mark 14 and 15, the events around the cross, are broken up in precisely that fourfold way. So it's in the evening, same word, 14, 17, uh, that um, Jesus and his disciples have the Last Supper. It's in the night that he is arrested and tried. It's at the crowing of the cock, 1468, that he is abandoned, even by Peter. And it is in the morning, 15 verse 1, same word, that he is handed over for execution. See what that means? Mark is saying that the, the timetable for the final coming of the kingdom is also the timetable for the cross. Fourth link, uh, 1314, if you look at that, chapter 13, verse 14, Jesus talks there about an unspeakable blasphemy and horror that will come, in response to which people will flee away. Now, it's a, it's a cryptic statement. It's a reference back to the prophecy of Daniel in the Old Testament, which at that point was probably predicting the, uh, the infamous oppression of the Jews in the second century B.C., when a man called Antiochus Epiphanes set up a, a, an altar to Zeus in the temple in Jerusalem and sacrificed a pig on top of it, which um, was not very culturally sensitive. And Jesus uses that phrase here, seemingly pointing forward to some like that, some great evil, some great blasphemy that will happen in the end, immediately before his final coming. But I think we're also right to see in that a description of the cross, which is, isn't it, the ultimate blasphemy as God himself is beaten and humiliated and murdered. And when in response to that, exactly as verse 14 had said, everyone runs away. Uh, Fifth, the fifth link is very simple. If you look at chapter 13, verse 16, Jesus is describing the trouble surrounding this traumatic and blasphemous end. And he says that at that time, people will be fleeing and running away in such haste and urgency that they won't even go back for their cloaks. And then if you look on over the page again, uh, chapter 14, verses 51 and 52, this is when Jesus is being arrested. And there's a young man there who's just got a cloth wrapped around him and the soldiers grab him and he runs off in such haste that he leaves his cloak behind. Uh, The sixth link is similarly clear. In chapter 13, verse 24, Jesus said that at the end, before the, the glory of the Son of Man, the coming of the Son of Man, the sun will be darkened. And 1533, as Jesus hangs on a on the cross, the sun is darkened for three hours between noon and three PM, a supernatural darkness. What he said would happen at the end is happening at the cross. And then uh, seventh, finally, in verses 24 to 27, Jesus speaks about the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. And we're used to understanding that as a description of the end of the world, when Jesus will return on the clouds of heaven. But there is another way of seeing it. Uh, That idea is really... uh, Um, 
Jesus is quoting from the book of Daniel in the Old Testament. And there, the promise, when it was first made, it's not the Son of Man coming on the clouds from God to earth, but coming on the clouds from earth to God. In Daniel 7, the description is of him entering. He comes to the throne room of God. The Son of Man figure comes before the Ancient of Days and is given rule and authority and worship uh, from the whole world. And although it means looking a little bit further than Mark's gospel runs, that is what we see in the crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. Daniel 7 is not just fulfilled as he comes back to earth, but as Jesus ascended on the clouds into God's presence and was crowned there as king. Do you see that link? Jesus ascends victorious from the cross into his father's presence where he is seated as the king. And I think, so even though Mark doesn't mention that, he doesn't get that far in his story, if you look at chapter 12, verse 36, we can see that these ideas are in his mind. This is when Jesus is arguing with the scribes, and he quotes Psalm 110. And he's saying, this is what the Old Testament expected from the Messiah. And he quotes those words. He says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand, until I put your enemies under your feet. That was the Old Testament promise, that God's Messiah would come and be enthroned, and he would then wait. He'd be enthroned, but the world had not yet brought to heal under his control. And doesn't that sound a lot like our world now, that Jesus, having risen, ascended, he is enthroned in heaven now, and he's waiting. And one day, a world that is still in rebellion one day will be brought to heal. Because of the cross, Jesus is the king now. He is enthroned and we are waiting for his return. That was quite hard work, wasn't it? Uh, seven pieces of evidence is, is quite a lot for this time in the evening when it's warm. But I, I think as we build up the picture, we can see what Mark is doing the links in the text, they're very clear, aren't they? They can't be a coincidence as Mark draws a line between the apocalyptic end that he says is coming and the events around the crucifixion of Jesus. He's saying, yes, that there is a judgment day, but it's as if the cross is a judgment day of its own ahead of time. The cross is where Jesus establishes his kingdom and where He wins his victory. Now, so what? We've done the spade work. What's the payoff? What are the practical lessons for us? There are are three on the sheet. I'm only going to talk about um, two of those. So number one, how does this help us, this link that Mark is drawing between the cross and the end of the world? Number one, it, it shows us that God's eternal judgment fell on Jesus at the cross. Now, I don't know how you feel about the idea of Judgment Day. For some here, it might sound silly, off-putting, medieval, far-fetched, something that modern people can't possibly believe. 
I guess many of us would say, no, we, we do believe that there will be a day of judgment. But if we're honest, it feels a long way off. It does, doesn't it? That's how I feel. It's hard to engage with the prospect of it emotionally. It just feels far off, not a part of everyday thinking, which when we actually process it, it is odd because if we're seeing things straight, then that's, that's the big day. That's the big day for us. It ought to fill our vision. It's the verdict of that day that is the verdict on our lives as we stand before God and are either embraced and forgiven by him or else sent away from him. That's a big day. And it's a scary day as we think ahead to Judgment Day and that prospect of standing before God. It's a scary thing to stand before the all-knowing, all-seeing God and see what he will say about my life. It's a stern prospect. It ought to make us tremble when we think about that day and possibly as we face our own mortality and death, and that'll come to each of us, won't it, at different times. It makes us tremble to think about that day when we will stand before God as our judge. But what we're seeing in Mark here really affects that because there is a link, isn't there, between the cross and that final day. What he's saying is that we need to think of that final day when we are judged by God in the light of the cross. Because on the cross... Jesus faced the eternal justice of God that we so rightly fear. On the cross, he faced what one day I should face. It's like another day of judgment ahead of time. And so for me, and for you, if you've put your trust in Jesus, that day holds no more fears The cross becomes our place of safety. There's, there's nothing left to fear for that future day. Because when we look at the cross, if we're Christians, we see that it's done. Everything's been sorted out ahead of time. In uh, the American prairies, and I gather it's the same in Australia as well, they have awful wildfires that sweep across miles and miles of country. They spread very quickly as the wind blows them. And so for the people in those areas, it's terrifying because you can't outrun the flames. And so what they do, apparently, is if you're in your your, your farmstead in the outback and you hear that the fire is coming your way, what you do is you light a load of fires, which doesn't sound like an intuitive thing, but apparently that's what you do. You light a fire and it spreads and burns and the wind blows it. And then you and your family... You follow the fire as it burns. You follow it um, downwind. And you stand in that scorched earth where the fire has already been. Because then when the big fire comes, there's nothing left to burn. And you are standing in a place of safety because the fire has already fallen. And it can't burn the same place twice. Well, that's how the cross is for us as we think of Judgment Day if we're Christians, we look at Jesus on the cross and we see the eternal justice of God falling on him. And we know that if we stand with him, if we put our trust in him, it won't fall the same place twice. And so we can face the terrifying day of judgment that should frighten us. We can face it with a confidence because we know that Jesus has sorted it out 
ahead of time. How you face Judgment Day depends on how you view the cross. If you stand with Jesus, trusting in him, trusting in his death, then you can face that day with complete confidence. Because for you, it's as if judgment has already happened. The fire fell on Jesus, so it need not fall on you when you front up before God. And for every person in this room, that is either a wonderful reminder or a wonderful offer. God's judgment fell on Jesus at the cross. And then the other thing, the other thing we see, secondly, finally, is that if Jesus triumphed by taking up his cross, then so will we. If Jesus triumphed by taking up his cross, so will we. One of Mark's main aims in his gospel is to show us what it means to follow Jesus. He says following Jesus means seeing who he is. It means trusting him. And then it means following in his footsteps of humble, self-sacrificing service. So we could think of his manifesto words, Jesus, in Mark 8, where he calls the crowds, his disciples, to him, and he says, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospel will save it. Following Jesus means laying down one's life. Usually, not all at once, but in installments every day. It means putting his work and his gospel ahead of what suits me. For example, in my decisions about the future. It means putting other people's needs ahead of my own. For example, when I train myself to pray for others every day, morning by morning, instead of just lying in a little bit longer or reading the papers. It means being willing to be thought less of in order to benefit others, like when we speak to friends about the gospel, which is hard. Following Jesus means laying down your life each day. And that is really hard. And because it's hard... For many of us, following Jesus can begin to take on a slightly tragic air. We feel hard-pressed. We feel a bit hard-done by sometimes. We, We accept that following Jesus has its hard points, but we also hope that life will have a lot of pleasures too in all the conventional ways that people around us are still able to enjoy. Sometimes we can... Avoid the cost of following Jesus. We choose not to take up our cross. Sometimes we do it, but it just has that air of tragedy. Well, Mark 13 is showing us that the cross, while it was tragic, was painful, was also the place of Jesus' triumph. It's the place, like in the final day, where the kingdom of God was established and the Father's will was done. Jesus embraced the cross. That doesn't mean that he didn't fear it, didn't mean that it didn't hurt him very much, but he did embrace it. The cross was a place of sacrifice, but it was also the place of triumph, the place where the place that God used to accomplish his good purposes.
And we can learn to view our own lives in the same way. That as we take up our cross, as he took up his, we know that that is what God will use, because he's promised to, to bring about his good purposes. And therefore, as we endure hardships for the sake of others, for the sake of the gospel, we needn't feel tragic about it or try to avoid it. We, like him, can learn to embrace it and find a joy in suffering as we follow Jesus because we know that God won't waste that. So thinking practically, as you lay down your life for your spouse or your children by trying to put their needs above your own, by being self-controlled and thinking about how to pray for them or how to pray with them, that's a costly thing. But God will use that. And so embrace that cost. As you lay down for your friends or colleagues or neighbors, as you pray for them and try to befriend them and work on the relationship and keep it going and spend time with them on their terms, meeting their needs practically as you can, uh, supporting them, trying to speak to them about the gospel in a way that they can engage with, inviting them to think about who Jesus is. That will be costly, but it's something that God will use. And so embrace that cost. It's not a tragic thing. It's a triumphant thing. As you lay down your life at work, being a kinder, more faithful employee and colleague than you really need to be, strictly, or than that the treatment of others towards you really merits, that will hurt, but that is something that God will use, and so embrace that cost. Taking up one's cross, following Jesus, is not a tragedy. It is how God's work moves forward, and therefore it is something we can embrace and have joy in, even though it is hard, because we know that it is something that God will never waste. The cross is the place of sacrifice for Jesus and for us, but it was the place of his triumph, and we can view it that way too in our own lives. Well, there we are as we look at Mark 13 and Mark 11 to 13. Eternity is right around the corner. It might not feel like that in ordinary life, but it's it's true nonetheless that eternity is right around the corner. And Jesus is the king before whom when he returns, all of us will stand. His verdict on that day is the verdict that matters in our lives as we are either forgiven and embraced or else sent away forever. That future day should fill our thoughts. But ahead of that day, linked with it, Mark is saying the cross has happened. God's judgment fell on him. He established God's kingdom in triumph. And therefore, if we want to stand with Jesus on that final day, and we will do, we need to stand with him now in trusting him and in following him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for what we see here of your justice, 
that you have set a day when you will judge the world in all truth and knowledge. But Lord, we thank you for the love that ahead of time brought you into the world to face that justice yourself so that sinful people could be forgiven. Lord, please help us to live much more than we do, much more than we naturally find easy to live with that future day in view. Help us to think of it as we think about our own lives and make our own choices. Help us to have that day in view as we think about those around us too. We're so quick to forget, Lord, what is coming, the eternity that matters so much more than the short lives we lead now. Help us to focus on that day. And Lord, from this chapter, help us to see that day in the light of the cross. We praise you for the grace shown there, for the triumph shown there. Help us to live our lives truly in the light of that as we take up our crosses and follow Jesus until we meet him. In his name, amen.